This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now, hosting this edition of the Best of Radio Parallax, Graham Smith. Good afternoon and welcome to Radio Parallax. Today we'll be talking with author Michael Trachtman about his book, The Supreme's Greatest Hits, The 34 Court Cases That Most Affect Your Life, and with George Pendle, who will be talking about his book, Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. But first, as always, let's talk about some fun facts of the week. In Anderson, California, police departments plan to provide 20 of its officers with nunchucks in order to promote non-lethal ways of subduing and detaining suspects. I wish I could make fun of them for it, but honestly, I'm just incredibly jealous. The World Health Organization has just announced that processed meat causes cancer. They're putting it in the same category one of uh, carcinogens as alcohol, cigarettes, and plutonium. However, that is only in very high doses, to be fair. And uh, for anyone who watches John Oliver's show last week tonight, you will have heard him uh, mention to those vegetarians who may be getting particularly smug about this, that the same study found that two-thirds of vegetarian sausages contained human DNA, while only 10% of meat sausages did. I'll leave it up to you listeners to figure out what that means. And the citizens of Guatemala have recently elected a comedian with absolutely no political background to be their next president. Television personality James Ernesto Morales Cabrera garnered nearly 70% of the vote in a runoff election. He ran on a dual platform, primarily based on his conservative values and simply not being tremendously corrupt. So for all of you out there who think uh, Donald Trump is pretty bad, uh, at least be glad that he is not most famous for a racist caricature that involves him putting on a wig and blackface. And speaking of election news, there was an election yesterday in a lot of parts of the country, which many people might not have been aware of. You may have heard of the bill to legalize marijuana that was floating in Ohio that got shot down. And while it has been touted as a win for anti-marijuana activists, many who favor legalization also voted against it because, as it turns out, while it did legalize marijuana, it also created a state-mandated monopoly that would have allowed 10 companies to have a complete stranglehold on the market. And while many people wanted to smoke weed, I guess they wanted to support that sort of shady business even less. Although in slightly better news for Ohio, they did manage to overwhelmingly pass a bill that uh, provided for the creation of a nonpartisan legislative district uh, commission to prevent gerrymandering, joining the 21 other states that have similar such commissions. Which, uh, while it is good news, is still a little depressing, given how terrible an idea it is to let politicians draw their own districts. And uh, while we're on the topic of complaining about the American political system, I want to mention a, a really interesting article that I read on 538 about how Democrats suppress voter turnout. Yes, you heard me right. Democrats do apparently suppress voter turnout. Theoretically, at least, Uh, I was always under the assumption that the Democratic Party was the one of trying to increase voter turnout on under the assumption that 
the sorts of groups that tend to be eligible to vote but choose not to, uh, young people, minorities, etc., also tend to swing Democrat. And so they can only be benefited uh, as a group by improving the number of people going to the polls. But apparently scheduling elections at odd times, like yesterday, I'm sure most of you didn't even know uh, there were elections going on yesterday, might be a deliberate strategy aimed at keeping turnout low because it gives more influential groups like teachers unions who have a lot more stake in the elections, a lot more proportional power. And there is some uh, solid evidence for this. Uh, political scientist Sarah Anzia, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, apparently gave a very compelling explanation in her book published last year on the subject. And she had a bunch of data and a bunch of examples. Uh, for example, a 2011 bill in Michigan to move school board elections to uh, November of even-numbered years, which was really heavily favored by both parties, barely passed along party lines with all of the Democratic legislators opposed to it. And looking at uh, 102 bills aimed at consolidating school board elections in general between 2001-2011, she found that 72 were sponsored either exclusively or predominantly by Republicans, compared with 23 that were sponsored exclusively or predominantly by Democrats, which is exactly the opposite of what you would expect from the traditional party platforms. So uh, just some food for thought. I know it's easy what with the uh, Republican presidential candidates making fools of themselves on television every day, but, uh, well, politicians are politicians and the Democrats aren't that great either. Next up, we'll be talking with Michael Trackman about his book on the 34 court cases that most affect your life. We're taught that our federal government's like a stool with three legs, representing the three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. Most citizens probably have a good handle on the first two. After all, we elect presidents and our representatives to Congress. The third branch, that of the Supreme Court, is perhaps less fixed in our minds, though its decisions have, since the earliest days of our republic, affected how our government functions and how we interact with it. Our guest, Michael G. Trachtman, has taken up the matter of our judicial branch of government with a new book titled The Supreme's Greatest Hits, The 34 Supreme Court Cases That Most Directly Affect Your Life. Mr. Trachtman is a founding partner of a major law firm located in Philadelphia and has previously authored What Every Executive Better Know About the Law. We're very pleased to have him join us today. Michael Trachtman, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. Our Constitution was composed in the late 1780s, and of course it's, that makes it tough to keep it relevant as times change. Your book notes that over the long haul, the Supreme Court has by and large done a pretty good job of keeping up with the times. Can we start a bit by talking about how that, that is no mean feat? Well, the, the document itself is a magnificent document, and, and is, um, by most historians' accounts, the, the oldest constitution that, that has remained in effect uh, in the world, and, and that is of tremendous credit to the framers of the Constitution who initially recognized that they had to create a document that would outlive them by many, many, many generations, and, and they did that. Uh, what's occurred thereafter is that the Supreme Court has been populated uh, not solely, but in large measure by some truly brilliant and creative people who uh, have taken that Constitution and applied it through through slavery, through the abolition of slavery, through industrial revolutions, through the digital age in a, in a tremendously creative way 
factoring in not only the law, but social considerations, culture considerations, and, and the rest of it, all the while creating a body of work that, that much of the rest of the world holds in awe. So it's kind of a product of not only the framers, but the people who have populated the court since that time, creating something that defines the American way of life. And, and uh, recognizing that is, is one of the main things that motivated me to write this book. Well, you, you know that the Supreme Court has had many important decisions, which in retrospect still look brilliant. We need to talk about the one that really put the Supreme Court on the map and shaped really everything that followed, the, the celebrated 1803 decision, Marbury versus Madison. Yeah, this is a case that, that all history students study, and most of them uh, don't like it when they have to study it, and that's only because it's not presented to them as it, as it really happened, which was a tremendous human drama between two giants of, of American history, uh, two gigantic minds, uh, and that would be Chief Justice John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson. Um, this is a case which would, which would make a great movie today. It, 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 it's just replete with drama, and it, it went a long way to defining American history. Marbury versus Madison arose out of the fact that when the Constitution was drafted, the framers really didn't say a whole lot about what the Supreme Court was and what its powers were. It, the Constitution just says that there's going to be judicial power in, in, the, in the judiciary branch and there's going to be a Supreme Court, but didn't really say what the power of the Supreme Court was. And John Marshall was somebody who firmly believed and wanted to make the Supreme Court supreme. Uh, Marbury versus Madison is the case that did that. It was a, a stare down between Marshall and Jefferson. It became a, a great political battle, and the upshot was that a decision was rendered, which Jefferson accepted uh, under, under some very cagey political circumstances that Marshall crafted into the decision. Uh, a decision was created which said the following. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. The Supreme Court gets to interpret the Constitution. If you add those two things together, that means that the Supreme Court gets to decide whether anything that anybody else does in the government any law, any action on the part of any other government official, the Supreme Court gets to decide whether or not that conforms with the Constitution. And if it doesn't, the Supreme Court gets to invalidate it. So what that means is that we stand in, in, a, in a situation today which is pretty unique in the world, maybe even in the history of the world, where we have a Supreme Court that can just say no to the President of the United States, to Congress, to your local municipal zoning official, on behalf of a single individual. So you or I can get into a contest with the president, and the Supreme Court stands between us and the president and can, can allow us to triumph so that our individual rights are becoming become more important than, than the other two, two, two legs of that stool you talked about. Completely unique in the world that, that we can do that, and, and that's something that just that simply defines the American way. I guess someone, one Supreme Court justice, I can't remember who it was, many years later sort of summarized it by saying, well, the Constitution is what, what we say it is, and it all goes back to Marbury versus Madison. It is, and the court can, can not only define the Constitution, it can then measure what anybody else in the government does against the Constitution as it defines it, and if it chooses and believes that what anybody else has done uh, is adverse to the Constitution, simply nullify it with a stroke of the pen. Well, you also note the Supreme Court has made some decisions that hurt American society, sometimes for decades, and which in retrospect seem to take really indefensible positions. Let, let's talk about the worst of the worst, perhaps. Uh, the notorious uh, 1857 Dred Scott versus Sanford. Yeah, that was the case that many historians say, as much as anything else, lit a match to the conflict that ultimately ended up in the Civil War. We're talking about the, the late 1850s when 
uh, the confrontation between the North and South over slavery is, is really getting to its peak. And Congress at that point essentially said, we've got to do something. And in 1820, long before this, Congress said, we at least have to, if not eliminate slavery from the southern states, we have to stop the spread of slavery into the new territories. We're making new states out west. And Congress enacted something that, that came to be known as the Missouri Compromise, which was a line that was drawn uh, on the southern border of Missouri and said, okay, no more slavery north of this line. We'll deal with what happened south of this line some other time, but no more slavery north of this line. The law had always been that if you had a slave and you took the slave into free territory, the slave became free. So that even if the slave then went back to slave territory, that, that notion of freedom still attached to the slave. The slave was free of all time, for all time. Dred Scott was a slave who got sold from, from one person to another, and, and Dred Scott's owner took him north of the Missouri Compromise line into free territory and then back again. And Dred Scott said, I'm free. I'm done. I'm free. He hired a lawyer. His case eventually got to the Supreme Court where he contended that he was free and sought his freedom. The Supreme Court heard the case and, and made an incredible decision in 1857. Supreme Court said two things. Said Number one, Dred Scott can't even get to court because he's property. He's not even a citizen who has access to a court. He doesn't have any rights. He's property. So, number one, Dred Scott loses on that basis. Number two, the court said, and oh, by the way, this Missouri Compromise line, which says no more slavery north of the line, Congress didn't have the power to do that. It's unconstitutional. We nullify it. No more stopping the spread of slavery. Well, you can imagine what that did to the, to the North. Uh, among those people who wanted to see no more slavery. You can imagine how that emboldened the South. Hey, even the federal government says there's no limits on slavery. As they say, the rest is history. Well, yes, and for, for this correspondent, there's a recent decision uh, I found indefensible, uh, wrong, and, and, and almost on par with Dred Scott, which I think we just want to mention uh, a bit about, 2000's Bush versus Gore. Uh, you note in the book this decision was criticized by many legal scholars, uh, comparing it to Dred Scott and my question for you is, might we look back on Bush v. Gore as maybe the Dred Scott decision of the 21st century? We might. It can be argued as to whether it will have had the lasting effect that Dred Scott did. Um, but in a way, it's a decision that has, has the potential of crumbling the moral authority of the Supreme Court. And, and remember, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. The Supreme Court doesn't have any way to enforce its decisions. It, it banks on its moral authority. And to the extent that the Supreme Court erodes its own moral authority by making decisions which appear to be politically motivated instead of motivated by an, an objective and neutral view of the law, well, then we're all in trouble. Because if, if the Supreme Court can't enforce its decisions, if what the Supreme Court says does not go, then there is really no way that any individual can enforce the liberties provided by our Constitution that would be the most significant constitutional crisis in our history. Let's go back to some triumphs of the Supreme Court, uh, starting with um, 1954's Brown versus Board of Education and, and the case it overturned, the famous 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson, which really validated an apartheid system here in America. Th those two cases are really fine examples of the good and the bad and more directly the process by which our law evolves through the Supreme Court. You know, the, the words in the Constitution stay the same. There, there's, there's equal protection under law in the Constitution. And, and as a matter of fact, words to that effect are literally carved in stone on, on the entrance to the Supreme Court building itself. 
those words didn't change, but the interpretation and application of those words changed as over the course of 50 years as, as the Supreme Court composition changed. Uh, back in the Plessy versus Ferguson case, the Supreme Court issued a ruling that said equal protection under law can be had by separate but equal accommodations in this country, by a segregated society, separate but equal accommodations in restaurants and transportation and, and, and all of the rest of it. That, that was, of course, a joke. The, the, the uh, accommodations were separate, but they certainly weren't equal. The schools were separate, but they certainly weren't equal. And the law looked the other way. Over the course of time, however, uh, Chief Justice Warren went on, the, went on the court, and Brown versus Board of Education was brought by a cadre of lawyers that are good marshal, headed the team later to become a Supreme Court justice himself, arguing that separate but equal is not equal protection. It simply doesn't work. Uh, and the Supreme Court issued Brown versus Board of Education, which uh, ruled unconstitutional the notion of segregation, desegregated the schools, and in the process really set down the tone that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and which really led to the entire civil rights movement and, and, and the movement where the quest for equality became woven into the fabric of our society, much more so than it had been previous to that decision. So many view that decision as the most important decision of the 20th century, the decision which set the tone in, in deeds as well as words that this country would stand for equality. Imperfectly, obviously, you know, there, there's still a lot to be done, but that ingrained it into the law, unlike the way it was previous to that decision. In terms of rights of the accused, there's two important cases that you talk about in the book, uh, cases which really totally reshaped our criminal justice system. Can you talk a little bit about Gideon versus Wainwright and Miranda versus Arizona? We so much take these things for granted now, people forget. Gideon, a uh, great movie, by the way, with, with Henry Fonda and, and, and a great book called Gideon's Trumpet. Gideon was the case that, that established throughout the country, uh, at a state level as well as a federal level, the notion that you can't put somebody on trial for a crime. You, you, can't, you can't threaten to take away their liberty uh, unless they have a lawyer. Uh, previous to that time, in, in many courts, uh, particularly state courts at that time, the federal government was pretty well covered, but particularly in state courts, people were being arrested, oftentimes indigent people who could not afford to hire a lawyer. They, they get put into the midst of a system which is stranger in a strange land, a very foreign place with, a, with foreign concept, concepts, foreign language. They don't know how to present evidence. They don't know how to handle a trial. And you can get easily convicted in that kind of a situation uh, without a lawyer, even though, even though you're innocent. Gideon was a, a, an indigent person who was convicted uh, without a lawyer, and he literally hand-wrote out from prison a, a petition which was heard, eventually came to the Supreme Court, and eventually caused the Supreme Court to, to revolutionize our criminal justice system by requiring that nobody can be criminally tried without a lawyer, and if they couldn't afford a lawyer, the court would appoint a lawyer for them. And that's the Gideon case, and, and that obviously stands as a pillar of our, of our civilized society today that can't railroad people unless at least they're represented, and the government is held to a burden of proof that somebody is guilty, uh, having been presumed innocent. The, the Miranda case went a little further than that and, and said that, well, if you're going to appoint counsel for somebody and you're going to give people these rights, you've got to tell them about it you, you, when you arrest them. And that's the very famous Miranda warnings that, that we all hear about. You've got to tell people that they have a right to counsel, and you've got to tell people that they better keep quiet because any, uh, anything they say to the police can and will be held against them, and maybe they want to talk to a lawyer first. The, the concept being, 
what good's a right to counsel if people don't know that they have a right to counsel? And that was the genesis of the Miranda warnings. Miranda has an interesting ending to it, however, that most people don't know about. Uh, Miranda was, was investigated and eventually convicted on the basis of a confession that he made, and the confession was overturned because it was probably coerced. Nobody could really tell, but in any event, Miranda didn't know that he had a right to counsel, and the Supreme Court said uh, there were enough doubts here that we needed to do something about this. So Miranda's confession and conviction was overturned. And, and the message of the Miranda case from the Supreme Court was, don't just try to get a confession out of somebody. The police should be trying to gather evidence rather than simply trying to get a confession against somebody who really doesn't know what's going on and doesn't have counsel. Well, the police went back after Miranda was freed by the Supreme Court. The police went back, they did their investigation, and guess what? Miranda was convicted and went to jail. So there was an ending here that not many people know about. Everybody thinks, oh, Miranda warning, it was a technicality, he got off. He didn't. He didn't get off. The police went back, did their investigation, proved the way that perhaps they should have proved it to begin with, that Miranda was guilty, and he was convicted and went to jail. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to our conversation with Michael Trackman. Bad boys, what you want? 